0: This is a Goodwill Media Podcast.
1: The types of, of message that is coming to the Australian public about what's happening with aid and development, it seems more about the likes of big ships and military or sporting events or having a barbecue and beers. And that's certainly not what is happening In the Australian Aid Programme, it's not what NGOs are are working on. We're not necessarily seeing um, that impact
0: on the ground. For some, the media is a fourth pillar of democracy. It supplies the political information, critical facts and stories that voters base their decisions on. And it's no secret that the aid programme gets its fair share of bad press. It's tough to crack a development headline that isn't a funding cut or a scandal... And much of the brilliant work done by you, development researchers, practitioners and policy makers, are stories that rarely get told in the mainstream press. But the role of today's guest, Lisa Cornish, is not just telling the story. It's finding the data, the evidence and the facts that brings accountability to Australian development. I'm Brady Rice, Director at the Australian Council for International Development and your guest host this summer at Goodwill Hunters. Today you're listening to the second of a six-part series on development and foreign policy, Last week, we spoke to Richard Maud on the making and shaping of foreign policy. You heard him make the case for why focusing Australian development on alleviating poverty is in our national interest. And he called on government to up the aid budget and refresh our foreign policy white paper in 2021. But he was speaking to us as an independent commentator steeped in rich government experience. And this week, you're going to hear a perspective on the Australian government's development program from outside of the tent. It's not every day you come across a data expert who is also a journo. It was great to have Lisa on the opposite side of the microphone today. Her insights are pretty candid on all things politics of aid, and she certainly doesn't hold back. Lisa calls on the government to step up on data transparency and in its communication of the aid program. And like all my guests, you'll hear from Lisa on what touched her most during COVID-19 as well as some of her summer reading tips. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Goodwill Media and ACFID social media channels, so continue the conversation online with us. And enjoy the episode, join me next week when I'll be speaking to Josie Pagani, Director of the New Zealand Council for International Development. We'll be talking about the politics of advocating for effective aid and development in Australia and New Zealand. Lisa, many of our listeners will be avid readers of your work, me included. After establishing yourself as a specialist data journalist, working with the likes of News Corp and as a freelancer, in the last few years, you've quickly settled into your role as the DevEx journalist here in Canberra. And I've seen you in action in a few media briefings with government. Your questions are targeted, you have a great reputation for in-depth research and relentless follow-up. So let's kick off by telling us a little about your journey from childhood to what you do now.
1: Um, I grew up in Melbourne, so I am not a Canberra native where I do reside now. Um, My journey into this space came from um, originally being an avid fan of Indiana Jones. I expected that I was going to be an archaeologist and somehow during university I discovered data and spatial mapping in particular, which took me on a journey down to um, working with the country fire authorities, strangely. That then actually took me overseas to China, where I was one of um, a a development volunteer, so um, the youth ambassadors at that time. Uh, But that was my first step into the development space. But coming back, um, my passion for data was still continuing further, which actually led me coming into Canberra, really working in terms of data communication and um, engaging in that space and ensuring agencies are working to better use data. But one of the biggest gaps was actually in terms of communicating externally. So trying to assist in in getting better communication of data and insight, I did not feel at the time was valuable doing with government. And that took me on the, the path to actually journalism and and starting working in that space to help communicate information and, and help the public gain new insights from data. So that did take me to News Corp. I was based in Canberra. I was out um, working in Parliament House. But because of my role with data, I was able to keep my head down and and a little bit out of the politics of Parliament. And But after that, um, I did decide to go beyond um, that work and into kind of freelancing and doing my own thing. At that stage, I had three kids. I now have four. And in terms of getting the balance right, I jumped out and did my own freelancing where I was actually contacted by Devex and with my past experience in both journalism and having been in the development space a little bit, but having had my uh, feet wet, it was a great opportunity to really jump in and and get passionate about this topic. So there is a lot to write about. There is a, a lot to do, but one of the challenges is the fact that it is not really prominent in Australia. We don't have even though we do have journalists that are working well at trying to get that story and we do see like The Guardian has more of a Pacific focus now, which is fantastic, uh, there still isn't enough uh, knowledge in Australia of what is happening in the development space.
0: Lisa, that's an extraordinary journey from Indiana Jones, archaeology, data, spatial mapping, China, China, into journalism. Um, Can you tell me a little about how important data and information is to your current role as a journalist?
1: Well, I think any journalist at the moment um, should be doing more with data. Uh, It is one of those things now that um, there's more data out there. So if you want to kind of find new stories and gain new insights you need to be able to know how to delve with into it but on top of that um we have more data insights being thrown at us uh especially 2020 when um COVID first hit we're getting we were getting bombarded with so much data and information but the question of what it actually means uh is a real challenge most of my um year in 2020 was actually spent going through funding data with COVID Um, and that was really delving into a lot of things to determine is this COVID funding, is it new, how do we want to categorise that, how do we want to report that and present that and I was putting all this data and information together as A package for the wider development community as well as getting news insights out of that uh, because that information just wasn't there. And probably in reality, if we weren't doing that, if I wasn't doing that, it wouldn't be there for several years to come to actually know who's doing what, in what space, what the money um, being put aside is whether announcements are actually flowing into action and how long that's taking, these are things that I have been pulling out of the data to really help
0: the development sector. So Lisa, we've seen a lot of changes in the Australian approach to aid and development in the last few years. How do you track that when not all of the raw data is publicly available for you to dig into?
1: So in Australia, we really get this um, information packaged up and delivered to us rather than having um, insights we can delve into. And things like COVID-19 again, going back to that, funding, when you actually have a look at the the raw data that comes out of DFAT, uh, programs are are tagged as COVID programs. Now what this can actually mean though is that if that program has existed for several years, it will unintentionally say that there has been funding since maybe 2006 or or even um, earlier That's associated with COVID-19. So we've also got to make sure that through data analysis as a data journalist that I can double check on the likes of figures that are coming out to make sure that what is being told to the public as well as the sector
0: is as correct as possible. Thanks, Lisa. So, zooming out a little, we're here chatting today because of one simple fact, and that is for the first time in a generation, that's over 20 years, the World Bank is predicting a rise in extreme poverty. And this raises a question about not just the short term, but also the longer term game for Australia and our relations in the region, a region full. Of emerging economies, can you tell me what increased poverty in our neighbourhood means to you and your role?
1: Yeah, that's a—it's a great question because it—it's such a challenge for the region. With my conversations that I have been having, uh, particularly in 2020, uh, once COVID hit, with um, representatives from the region about really their voice. Uh, their concerns are that they're not going to be heard, they're going to be devalued, or they're not going to be prioritised as larger economies are also struggling. So we've got to f- remember that, you know, COVID-19 um, impacts everyone and we do see with the likes of United States under Donald Trump that we saw a lot of countries putting themselves first. So this becomes an even bigger challenge for the smaller countries, uh, smaller economies that already felt that they didn't have a strong voice. So it's really going to be a challenge moving forward, but ensuring that these voices that aren't necessarily are always heard, can become a bit more to the forefront is going to be an important role for me and the likes of other journalists working on the Pacific or other small and emerging economies to ensure that they don't get left behind in the conversation of economic development and economic growth in the coming years. And it is going to take a long time to recover from the economic impacts of COVID-19 um so the concern really is that unless they're given a voice that they're prioritized that it is just going to snowball that the the poverty and extreme poverty will continue to grow Um, So yeah, it's concerning for me and it kind of puts a lot of weight on me as a journalist to make sure that I am bringing those stories to light as much as possible. So in the coming years, I really do see that there is going to be um, a lot of importance of journalists in working in this space and and bringing those stories to light.
0: Lisa, Australia does have a $4 billion official government aid program on top of the Approximately one billion dollars plus of NGO assistance that Australians send overseas each year. How do you see the media portraying this assistance, and specifically including voices from the region?
1: If we're discussing the mainstream media in Australia, it's not a priority for them. The Australian aid program really isn't. Now that it has been cut so severely, and is at the point where, in reality, we we can't cut anymore. Um, Otherwise, there's there's no way that um, we can deliver on the likes of the Pacific Step Up that we hear as part of the conversation all the time. So promoting it and publicising it isn't necessarily a priority. What is fantastic, though, is the likes of the ABC, where they have their Pacific programs that are really working to show that conversation. And, and the association between Australia and the Pacific and have a, a bit of a foot in, in both camps there to ensure that, that um, you're hearing about what's happening as well as hearing about the impact. That's not necessarily going to go out to the average person in Australia. So there is always that challenge of how do we get the information to the Australian public. Now the other challenge really is that, um, especially since uh, we lost Julie Bishop as foreign minister, the engagement and the leadership from the ministers involved has been quite poor. So the types of, of message that is coming to the Australian public about what's happening with aid and development, it seems more about the likes of big ships or military or sporting events or having a barbecue and beers. And that's certainly not what is happening in the Australian Aid Program. It's not what NGOs uh, are working on. We're not necessarily seeing
0: um that impact on the ground. Lisa, that's an interesting point. Um, The prevalence of Australian defence articles is actually 24 times higher than aid articles here in Australia. And yet the Australian defence budget is only, say, eight times more than the aid budget. Do you think that aid stories are simply less newsworthy? Or are you saying that also we're not promoting the story of development?
1: No, I think the story of development is definitely being promoted. I think the um, the difference when, when you look at defence, talking about defence versus uh, development, if you look at Australia's history, um, Australia's identity or the white identity really was built off, you know, the Anzac spirit. So that defence and the idea of defence being part of who Australians are has been really ingrained in us. And we certainly have a government at the moment that um, is very much still trying to promote that idea of, you know, the ANZAC as being what Australians are. So development um, doesn't always necessarily fill that space. Uh, There is a little bit of association, but um, it's only really when it's humanitarian assistance that it is more defence-like and that humanitarian assistance is getting more of the story than necessarily just um, individuals that are working at a, a small school program and helping to transform the way that education might be happening in, in um, remote areas of Papua New Guinea, for example. So I think that is really part of, of what the issue is at, at promoting it. And the fact that mainstream media really does jump on the ANZAC ideal as well. So that is definitely why we get more defense articles than we do development articles.
0: Lisa, that's a fascinating insight into Australian history and and mainstream media. And certainly I observe that the the framing we are most familiar with in the media on development often goes along the lines of government cuts the aid budget, NGOs complain, things go quiet, and then we go around again unless there's a a negative headline that might come out, for example, uh, around sexual exploitation or otherwise. Do you think there's an opportunity to be telling a different story post-COVID-19? I mean, in 2020, we saw the first increase to the aid budget for almost a decade. Do you think we can break this narrative and talk about development, foreign policy and the Pacific family beyond just the budget terms?
1: Yeah, but it needs to come from the leadership um, within the Australian government, really. I, I don't think the narrative is going to change unless they want it to change. So at the moment, the narrative has been, don't mention the budget, try to keep things as quiet as possible. So if you can't communicate about what's happening from within side the major funder, How can you actually tell the story properly about what Australia is doing? Now, money is an important part of that conversation, regardless of whether ministers or the government want that conversation or not. It is part of the story about how you need to spend to support the region, how that flows back. And we know how to tell the story. We know the story that needs to be told. But we need the leaders at the top of the government to be telling that story as well. So there is nothing that the development sector in Australia are doing wrong in telling the story. The problem is that the story is not being told from the most influential people who can actually make an impact with that story.
0: And Lisa, how does that compare to other countries and donors and how they communicate to the public about development?
1: Yeah, great question. I do find that Australia is very special in this space most countries are very happy to tell their story when i am engaging with other donor organizations i don't get barriers as much as what you get from australia with dfat Uh, when i have to go to um the united states usaid for example and ask some information about funding about their programs, policies, et cetera, I get responses really quickly and I get really detailed responses. I get follow-up. Did you need more information? Was this it? Did we we get you everything you needed? Um, and they will follow up with as many people to get insights as possible. You know, I can use a named source in these things. Whereas um, in Australia, it's we. I do find that um, the narrative tries to be controlled. Uh, some of the, the questions that I will ask won't necessarily be answered within an appropriate time frame or at all uh, sometimes. And, and I feel that might just be to try to get the story to disappear. So that's just my perspective, but it does feel that way. Um, and that's a real a challenge again in being able to tell the Australian story when you don't have the information, you don't have the support from the organisations to actually tell the story and tell the story freely and truthfully. Um, Whereas other organisations are definitely happy to help the conversation to ensure insights are out there. as well as as be part of the conversation so it's it's a very different perspective um working in australia in the aid space is probably one of the most challenging spaces to be when i talk to my colleagues when they need something about the australian aid program i need to warn them and they just go that's not possible and when they deal with it and they go i can't believe (laughs) i can't believe the way that they operate it is surprising but it is also really part of that barrier of getting that that story and the Australian aid story out there. Hmm.
0: Lisa, our listeners, uh, certainly those in Canberra in particular, will be familiar with what you're talking about, but they'll also be familiar um, with the counter-argument, and that is that government or ministers in particular may be concerned that aid spending is simply not popular with the Australian public and there may be benefit in in not speaking out a lot about the aid and development program. What would you say to that?
1: It's hard to have that argument when you're not, in, not putting that information out there to determine. So that is based on people's individual perspectives. It's not based on fact. It's not based on reality. We've seen so many surveys where um, we're told that the Australian public really don't know what the spending is. So how can they be upset about it if they actually don't have proper information about it? So the argument really is a false argument. It needs to stop. That information needs to be out there. There needs to be openness and transparency. And I would argue actually that um, the Australian public would be more annoyed that they don't know how how things are being spent. Um, And we do see a lot of surveys as well that when people are told what's happening they're very supportive of it so we do have the conflicting arguments but just saying oh the Australian public don't like the program we don't want to put the information out there it's just not an argument it's not real you can't keep on saying that you need to get that information out we need transparency in government I mean transparency is more important than that the reality is we're spending It needs to be out there. If the Australian public are up in arms about certain things, you need to be able to have that information out there to have that conversation about what the Australian aid program should be that shows, you know, the Australian values and what they want to do. But at the moment, it's based on individual ideas rather than the reality of what Australians really think about the Australian Aid Program. So I completely disagree with that argument. And the more that I hear it, the more that I just want to, you know, smack my head on the table and just go, what are we doing here?
0: (laughs) Goodwill Media exists to advance the fight against all forms of poverty globally. We work with leading communications experts from across the Pacific to create localised, culturally informed content that inspires, empowers and drives action. You can work with us to develop and implement a streamlined approach to communications on development projects in Australia, the Pacific and Timor-Leste. And you can trust we'll combine international best practice with unrivalled local knowledge and experience. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, CEO of Goodwill Media. This summer series of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by Goodwill Media because we're passionate about creating really good content based on evidence and experience to help shape the progress and development of our societies. Lisa, so So far, we've covered off on some key concepts. We've looked at what economic backsliding means in our region, the importance of elevating and responding to the voices of the region. Uh, We've looked a little bit about, uh, we've looked a little at the interactions between development and the media. What would your tips be for those of us in the development sector in engaging with journalists? I think
1: one of the most important things is not to necessarily be trying to push a story all the time, because most of the time when you are engaging with a, with journalists, it is we have a story here. You go, can we help you with that? I think there there is opportunity in this space to really try to feed development in some of the more wider conversation beyond just development so trying to think about how it could fit in with other aspects of conversation and um, building partnerships with certain journalists that you could be saying um, hey if you're ever working in this area as well we might have insights as part of that rather than just kind of being here's a story it goes out there and then there's not really any follow-up or flow on from that. So thinking a little bit differently about how the work of the Australian aid program and the development sector can fit in some of that wider conversation. Now, COVID-19 has created that opportunity to feed it into the wider conversation, the likes of, of the economic sustainability of the Pacific region, the likes of the Pacific bubble, how would uh, that work, what is the importance of the likes of the development in that space to get that wider conversation happening. So um, the the sector, I think, is really good at building partnerships with journalists. I think ensuring that there is a bit of a two-way flow um, and helping to think beyond the likes of a a traditional development story is going to be really important moving forward. Um, That
0: sounds like good advice, Lisa. (laughs) Well, we're coming to the end of our time together, Lisa, and I have just two more questions. And the first of them is, what fact, headline or story has touched you most during the COVID-19 period?
1: The big one for me was when we hit one million deaths in September. That was a devastating tally to hit. It was a horrible story to have to write. But I was also speaking to people that were involved in, in, you know, telling the numbers, recording the numbers and looking at the trends. So I was speaking with someone from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is based in Seattle, and they do the trend forecast of the global numbers and particular region numbers of where the likes of cases and deaths would get to it at a certain period. And I spoke to someone and I asked them, how are you going with with dealing with the numbers? Are you and your team okay? And they just took a big deep breath and just went, it's really hard because those numbers are people and they're people that they know the forecast that they have could be forecasting death of their friends and colleagues. It's not. It's people. It's lives. And it's a lot of lives that
0: we lost in 2020. Mm. Thank you, Lisa. To finish, I was wondering if you can share a recommendation for our listeners who might want to know more about media, journalism and development or perhaps even something that might be on your summer reading list.
1: Well, I'm I'm not gonna recommend something about journalism, but I did have the pleasure to read and it was kind of my son's high school assignment. <laughs> he read as part of his um school reading, ando's is the happiest refugee. So I read that myself to make sure that he was doing the work that he was meant to be doing and I am very happy to say that he was doing it. He did read it properly, but it was such a pleasure to read that book, and it was also something that I'm very pleased to say that a 14 year old boy enjoyed reading as well. Um, it's something that I, if you haven't read, go out grab it. It's it's a pleasure to read, but it's also fantastic to get that um, insight on the refugee experience in Australia, as well as, you know, how Ando came to be that fantastic person he is today.
0: Well done, Lisa's son. Keep doing your homework. (laughs) And um, I'm happy to confirm that I'd recommend that book as well. So Lisa, it's been great talking to you. Enjoy the rest of your summer.
1: Thank you. You too.